November 17, 2013, lecture discussion number 132. And for those of you who have missed uh, lectures uh, 130, or I'm sorry, 0 to 131, this might be a little bit difficult for you. But don't uh, don't worry, you will prevail. I always back up every lecture, knowing that I have to do that in order to keep people uh, uh, as aware as possible. So I'll do it again today. But understand that there is uh, 131 lectures prior to this one. And they run consecutively, and they feed one on another, so to speak. So after last Sunday's lecture, again, number 131, it should come as no surprise that we find uh, you guys, the little band of, of uh, soldier travelers, uh, uh, you're, most of you were telling me you feel entombed in the typical cliffside avalanche of questions. So last week I had lots and lots of questions. I did answer some, didn't I? I actually did, so uh, write that down as an unusual day. But don't be distraught if you feel buried. Um, the cavalry, is it the cavalry or is it the cavalry? You should know that. The cavalry is is on the way once again, as always, uh, and we're going to dig ourselves out uh, today. And how am I going to dig you out of all of those questions that I asked last week? Yeah, I'm going to dig you out by asking you more questions. And naturally, uh, some, you should get my mail sometimes, uh, they protest that the process of adding uh, more questions to an already big mountain, uh, a pile of it, is of no value. That uh, they're already buried and seeking to extricate themselves, and adding questions to that process they don't feel is uh, valid. But uh, those who do that protest... Uh, uh, are mistaken, as you know. And more questions is exactly what is needed to move heaps of questions. So if you're shoveling questions, the only way you do it is you ask more questions. And you should already know that. And if you find yourself lost uh, in, in the Bible, then that means you're not asking the correct questions most of the time. You should be overwhelmed by questions whenever you read the Bible. And the only way to navigate that and negotiate it is to keep asking questions. Answers to biblical mysteries are solved, in my view, and I'm absolutely certain of this, are solved only by asking all of the correct questions in the correct order. So if you're not moving somewhere, if you're confused, if you have a, a salvation question, as, as Jonas has brought up, if, you, if you're concerned about losing your salvation, then ask the, the obvious question. What if God had designed a system by which it's possible for you to lose your salvation by your own decision-making? Then you would have a system of salvation by which, as Jonas pointed out, that no one would be saved in. So now you're accusing God of creating a salvation method by which, at the end of, not a single person made it. What are you saying to the character of God? You're certainly questioning his goodness because as you, if you have any honesty in you at all, you know, as Jonas pointed out. Now, Jonas, your name is now going all over the world, isn't it? I'm huge in Finland. Australia. Uh, I should say hi to people. Uh, Maria in London has written me quite a bit, and, and uh, I have not mentioned her because I, I do answer these, by the way, uh, one letter at a time. Yes, young lady with the hand up. What may I say for you? Let me get that into the uh, internet for you. Uh, what uh, what Annabelle was asked said that she went someplace uh, earlier today where she took the uh, pastor teacher aside and asked if if um, that church believed that you could lose your salvation and whether or not they believed Jesus Christ was God. And their response is that that was a minor issue and that they could not, they did not want to divide the church. They had room for everyone's position on both issues, I assume. Well, that's, that's very sad because that's not, those are not minor issues. Um, and as you ask questions about it, see, don't ask, can I lose my salvation? Ask instead, how is it that the system is what it is? How is it that if I could lose my salvation, would, I, would anyone be saved? If you were honest with yourself, you would recognize that we are all depraved and eventually none of us would make it if it were possible. He has to hold us or we all run into traffic off the cliff. 
He has to hold us, and he promises to. I will not forsake you, he says, Hebrews 13.5. Anyway, that's the whole point of all of that. Answers to those kinds of difficult questions. What would happen if Jesus Christ were not God? No one would be saved. He has to be God for us to, us to have salvation. So those are the questions that solve these other ones. All biblical mysteries are solved by asking all of the correct questions. If you find yourself stuck somewhere in the Bible, in Scripture, go back and ask why on the previous verses that you are reading, the context. For example, why is God saying this particular thing in this particular place that you're reading? Why is God doing this particular thing now? In this particular place. Ask, who is God saving by him doing this? Every time you see God comes in and, and, and has to do something that most people would say is uh, grossly unfair or violent or cruel, ask instead, what would happen if he didn't intervene? Who would be saved? Who is saved by him intervening? The Canaanites, he waits 400 years before he destroys them. Who was saved by that? Not who was killed. That's the other question. What happens if he doesn't do it? That's how you solve very difficult questions. Who is God saving? What is he teaching by this? Who is he teaching it to? What would be the consequences if he did not do or say what he did at this specific place? Just to name some of the ways you extricate yourself. And I know you get the drift here because you've been here forever and uh, and you're tired of me repeating myself. But I have to, as you know, try and determine the meaning and the purpose as well as where the passage fits within the Bible. For an example... Where, what does, what I'm reading, I don't understand. I'll give you, uh, to use the, uh, use an analogy. Suppose you come to some place in scripture, like 1 Kings 13, and you, you say, I don't understand it. I don't know why it's in the Bible. I don't know what it means. Ask yourself, what does it connect to? What other story is like this? What other phraseology, if you will, what other words are being used? Go out and get all of those words. A few weeks ago, I, I, I can't remember, but uh, Eric uh, mentioned that somebody uh, got up in one of their meetings at the, where he teaches and, and uh, said the way you solve something is, I, I think it was on lambs. Go out and get all the lambs in the Bible. Put them all together. Then you find out what the meaning of the lamb is. That is absolutely profoundly correct. The Bible is interconnected by design. All the lambs connect to each other. All the bruisings connect to each other. Uh, all the altars connect to each other. You can go and get all the pieces and begin to figure out how it is, um, how it is in fact related. You see, the Bible is interconnected by design. I was mentioning to, to John and Loretta. Isn't that impressive that I remembered your name and could pronounce your name? Now that's two weeks in a row, right? I should get something for that and another stick of gum. Did I do it right? Apparently I did. No, I said you right after that. Okay, well, I got close then. Maybe I don't get an award. Anyhow, the point of it is, as I said to them, that that you will notice that the Bible is exactly like the ecology, Exactly like the cosmology, exactly like whatever he, whoever designed this Bible designed all of the creation. They're the same design. My fingertips are connected um, electrically and chemically and neurologically. Um, my whole body has this tremendous relationship in itself. So does everything else that he has done. You move one little thing, you affect all the other things that are associated with it. You certainly cannot have. Uh, we were talking about Fermi's uh, uh, paradox again. How can I have all of this complexity, all of this matter, and all of the universe, and if any piece gets out of order at all, completely disintegrates? Because that's what will happen. Move the sun, see what happens to life on Earth. And, and you move it a mile. Move, uh, change the atmosphere. Take take hydrogen out, add ammonia. The the, the the complexity, the interconnection, 
that allows for this life to be. In all of the universe, it appears that we have the rare earth, as you point out, or as I pointed out a few weeks ago. There's only one place in all of the universe that has life. How can that be? Okay. That's uh, just uh, off the top of my head today. We left off at 1 Kings 13, attempting to solve this amazing mystery, and I buried you in questions. And like I said, now I want you to begin to go... Okay, if I can't solve it, I must be having, I must be missing questions. So thus far we've covered and resolved uh, Jeroboam's hand, why it was withered. Okay? Jeroboam's hand is withered. Ask why. What else do you ask after you get that? Where else in the Bible is somebody's hand withered? It's Zechariah 11.17. Whose hand is it that's withered in Zechariah 11.17? Okay, the, that is the, uh, the identification, if you will, of the Antichrist. Is what's happening. That's, so you immediately know I have a connection now between Jeroboam and the Antichrist. <coughs> the naming of the child Josiah. I have Josiah specifically named 300 years, 290 years before he is even born by the unnamed prophet. And I mentioned last week that he is connected to Cyrus. And so you have a mathematical equation, by the way. Josiah plus Cyrus equals Christ. In other words, I have two advents of of Christ right there. So there's a relationship between Cyrus and Josiah and, of course, culminated in Christ. We began to gather the pieces that explain the symbol that is the golden calf. I'll just write calf. As you know, last week we're dealing with two calves holding up an altar, which is different than what was happening in Exodus 32.4. So the symbol that is the golden calf has a tremendous significance, and it is connected, by the way, to the withered hand of Jeroboam. So ask, how is it connected to Jeroboam? And how is it that the uh, the golden calf, what is its contrast? Because you'll find the golden calf in Exodus 32.4. You'll find it in Acts 2.41. And you'll notice that there is a calf-lamb contrast. So, in other words, on one side I had gold, golden calves. On the other side I have the Passover lamb, if you will. Or the lamb of God. And so, eventually that will shed light, light on the great question uh, from Christ to Judas at Gethsemane. Here we go again. Judas at Gethsemane. Do you remember the great question that Christ asked Judas? He asked him, uh, Judas, what's this kiss thing? I'll read it exactly. Judas, are you delivering the Son of Man with a kiss? Notice I did not say betrayal. Cannot betray omnipotent God. The word means deliver. You'll see the delivery theme all over the Bible, constantly delivering, delivering, delivering. It's impossible to betray someone who is omniscient and omnipotent and outside of time and the maker of time. For goodness sakes, be logical. So, Judas, are you delivering the Son of Man with a kiss? That is the question that Christ asked Judas. That takes us up to the withered hand of Jeroboam and the calves of Jeroboam and the golden calf of of Exodus 32.4. And add in, if you will, uh, Hosea uh, 13.2 and 14.2, which explains why Judas chose the kiss, what the kiss symbolizes. Now, you're going to read a lot about how it is an act of love or how it is an act of, of uh, what's the word I want, reverence or worship, if you will. I don't think that that holds up when you put all the pieces together. That's what I'm trying to say. Find the interconnections. And I think you'll have a, a better reason, a more complete reason, why Judas chose, of all the signs he could choose to identify Christ, he chooses the kiss and Christ immediately calls him on it. They would know, wouldn't they, what the kiss meant. If they, any two people, and of course one is God himself in the flesh, the other one is Judas, the most powerful human being, I can't say that enough, ever created. But in any event, that kiss was not an accident. And then after that, and I don't have time to write it on the board, we attach the donkey and the lion to the two advents of Christ. So I have a donkey, I have a lion, 
And the two chariots of Josiah to the two advents of Christ. Remember that first Josiah goes into battle in a disguised chariot. That Noah, and he's disguised and the chariot's disguised. So you get the king of Israel going into battle with nobody knowing who he is. And he, of course, is pierced and dies. And then he is moved to the kingly chariot. So you see that Christ has two uh, revelations, if you will. The first one is that he's disguised. You do not know that this is God. That's the mistake, as you know, that all the modern media makes with regard to the crucifixion of Christ. Every movie I've ever seen on the crucifixion of Christ that is made does not identify him as God. They don't pierce through the disguise. That's demonstrated in Josiah. And, and you have the, so you have the disguised chariot and then you have the kingly chariot where, where Christ comes back. First, uh, Christ uh, rides in on a donkey, right? That gives you your donkey lion thing that we covered last week. And note, by the way, and second Christ comes in as God King, and, and, and everyone knows. But note that the lion, let me put lion and donkey up here really fast. Notice, as I said last week, who killed the unnamed prophet who was right? And by the way, as soon as I say, I'm getting off track here. As soon as I say that the unnamed prophet is riding a donkey and he's killed, then you should find another person that is riding a donkey and has and dies. Who's that? That's Christ himself. So the unnamed prophet in 1 Kings 13 is clearly a portrait of Christ. Just with that one fact. Now start evaluating the rest of him and see what else he is, right? But note that the lion killed the unnamed prophet who is a type of Christ. Did the Romans kill the unnamed prophet? Did the Jews kill the unnamed prophet? No. The lion does. And the lion is a symbol of Christ, especially at the second coming, but also always a symbol of Christ. The lion killed the unnamed prophet. I cannot emphasize that enough. The lion. That should solve everything about the crucifixion for you. Right there. It destroys every movie ever made. Because in the portrait of the unnamed prophet in 1 Kings 13, he is killed by the lion. Very important to know that. So you have to know what the lion symbolizes, don't you? Also notice that the lion um, is doing what? The body is in the middle of the road. What's the lion doing? He's not tearing the body up. He's not breaking any of the bones. He's not devouring the body of the unnamed prophet. What's he doing? He's sitting there. Who comes by? You remember the story from the last few weeks? A bunch of people come by. Some of them go back and tell the old prophet, hey, we found the unnamed prophet. He's dead. Lion killed him. Lion's not eating him. What else is the lion not eating? The donkey. I have the lion and the donkey... Standing side by side, doing what? I'm going to tell you, the lion's guarding the body. You don't get to touch the body. You got to deal with the donkey and the lion. Good luck. Lots of people go by, nobody touches the body of the unnamed prophet, the man of God. No one touches his body. Lion won't let you. Lion kills the body, lion protects the body. Let's now see the, the connection to the crucifixion. Who's protecting the body at the crucifixion? God is. He's protecting his own body. Who kills the body at the crucifixion? The lion does. Who's the lion? What does it symbolize? Who, how is it only the lion can kill the body at the crucifixion? Does that make sense to you? Because I, 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 I did it in such a way that you may not follow me. And the lion is guarding the, pro, the body until when? Until the old prophet comes to get it. So now you know something about who the old prophet is. He's the one that comes to get the body. And the lion lets him. That's pretty significant. I can imagine you got a body in the road of a famous prophet who's already famous throughout the whole country of Israel. And he's got possessions. And everybody's going, I think we just leave the body be. 
They're going to mess with the lion. We'll go back and tell the unknown prophet. Or I'm sorry, the, uh, the old prophet. And that's pretty much where we are today, where we left off. And, and there, I threw in a couple of new things to keep you awake. It's worked on about half of you. But before uh, we continue, I really do have a backload of uh, mail from our vast Internet audience that outnumbers us a hundred to one, a thousand to one. It's really, really getting worse by the day. And sometimes I was telling Lindsay, you know, it's uh, I, I, I've worked now hundreds of uh, over 120 days in a row and I'm exhausted. I can sometimes just lay in, at home and go, I just can't keep doing this. But uh, I really don't have a choice and we just keep going forward until I can get control of everything, and I'm very close on both buildings now. I can see the end, so that's keeping me moving. But um, um, what I've got now is a backload of questions from this Internet audience that is growing, and and, uh, and it's wonderful, and, but they're accumulating. i got a big pile, and if I don't at least make a dent, I'll find myself falling way, way behind her, more so than I already am. I, I got this from Norman from Tennessee. I just wanted to read it to you because it's really about you as well. It's not, I am not a one-man show here, as you know. There's so many of you involved, and, and, and they recognize uh, what we're doing. We're putting something on the Internet that is uh, pretty unique, if not completely unique. That's both good and bad, by the way. Consider that as I read this. Dear, uh, I mean, Pastor Stephen, I wanted to let you know I really appreciate your sermons. And thank you, Norman. I, I appreciate you appreciating my sermon. They're not really sermons, are they? But that's okay. They are well thought out. Aha! For those of you who thought... Uh, they are well, well thought out and challenge my thinking each time. They also bring me closer to the Lord, which is why I continue to listen to them. And that is the only reason you should continue to listen to them. I can't find a church in my area. Yeah, Norman, we know, buddy. East Tennessee. Johnson City, that is not playing rock and roll music and giving watered-down milk-only sermons. Your sermons are a blessing to me and many more like me who listen through the Internet, Norman. And, and Norman, we just welcome you to the group. It's the first uh, that I've got heard from Norman. I don't know how long he's been listening, and I just wanted to say thank you and welcome. I get that out of the way. But I've also gotten an abundance of questions. Some are on the spiritual reality and the accompanying implications of quantum physics. As you know, I've done a lot of quantum physics uh, um, uh, lectures over the years, um, but uh, and a few of them are on the Internet. One of the, it's Heisenberg, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It's called quantum uncertainty. And the, the, what goes with quantum uncertainty, if it has a mate, if you will, in quantum physics, is intelligent observation. And you've heard me talk about that with interferometry. Uh, that mean, may mean nothing to some of you today. But it, in the Internet, it is of a, a very, very great importance because the materialists or the reductionists uh, those are the monists. Those are the people that believe that when we die, we are reduced to physical particles that scatter in the universe and your intelligence, your mind, your person, your awareness is gone forever. All there is is blackness. Those are the materialists, the reductionists. And the scientific community has a lot of them. But they're dropping fast. And the, what's dropping them out of the materialist or the reductionist uh, position, the monistic position, is quantum uncertainty. It's very troubling to them. Intelligent observation. What do I mean by intelligent observation? The observation effect. Which means if an intelligence is watching something, it changes. That is a quantum principle that is absolutely true. So we will see something happen and then something else entirely the opposite of that almost if it is observed by intelligence. That's interferometry. Wave-particle dualism. So I got a lot of questions on that. 
But I just wanted you to know today, uh, and eventually I'll, I'll get to it as time goes by for those of you on the Internet that are asking me that. The, the intelligent observation is destroying the atheistic community in the scientific realm. Because intelligent observation has what obvious question to it. If things are changed by intelligent perception, when it, if things are changed by observation then who's observing it? Who's observing all of it? And the physics world is now beginning to say, okay, we have intelligent, not just creation and design, but we have intelligent observation. So those of you who who run into agnostics who think the designer has wound up the clock, so to speak, and walked away and is no longer participating, you are in conflict with intelligent observation or the observation effect. So in the coming weeks, I'll go back to that uh, because I'm also going to do Pascal's wager, which is um, always of interest. Uh, It is what Pascal uh, called his pitiful state. He essentially said this, um, that you have to bet. You've got to reach into your pocket and pull out your money and place your money. You you, you pay your money, takes your chances, right? You have to do that. And, and, and what you were waging on, uh, according to Pascal, uh, 17th century philosopher, scientific thinker, you're wagering on God is or God is not. So think roulette for those of you who need applicational analogies. Where are you going to put your fistful of chips? Are you going to bet on God is or are you going to bet on God is not? That is called Pascal's wager or what he called his pitiful state again because he had to wager something. You don't have a choice. Think about it. What is If you say God is not, then what have you bet on? You have bet on God is not. If you bet on God is, then what is the only place else you can bet? There is no God maybe. Pascal's correct. God is not or God is. And you will bet. You're betting now. Everyone who's listening to me all over the internet has bet. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with the, the issue of that wager uh, next week, I hope. Uh, but, but as you know... Uh, and again, I, I see the uh, funeral that was here, and I recognize the symptoms of Alzheimer's in the uh, in the pictures and the photographs that are over there. I did not know uh, that uh, family, but I can recognize Alzheimer's when I see it because uh, I uh, I watched my mother die of Alzheimer's over 15 years. It has a look to it, uh, a vacant look that you cannot mistake. Um, and so I'm interested in the mind and the brain. That's what made me interested because um, I'm obviously worried it's coming for me. Why wouldn't it? My father d- died of a heart attack, but he had heavy dementia. My mother died of essentially complications from Alzheimer's. Uh, so the, having that on both sides of the family, not only am I worried about it, but it also is valuable as an excuse which I take advantage of. But but that makes me, again, get into the mind and the brain, the physical brain and the non-physical mind that controls the physical brain. Again, that's quantum physics. I'm back to quantum physics. I have non-physical... I have impacts on physical things by non-physical things. But uh, the mystery of anesthesia or drug-induced reversible coma happens probably 100,000 times a day in this country, or certainly uh, in the Western countries. I I would have no idea, but it happens. Somebody is going into a drug-induced coma. Uh, An anesthetist, is that correct? Did I say that right? Okay, good. Because I confuse that with the people that do your eyebrows and and fingernails. That just just happens because of the family I live in. Uh, but anesthesia or drug-induced reversible coma, and the, in its contrast, you, this morning I was awakened by a member of my family, and I was in a wonderful dream about wrecking uh, a car. And while I'm in the dream wrecking uh, the car, 
I am arguing with myself over whether or not it's a dream. I don't know if you ever have done that, but I have I have tried to make a left turn essentially uh, uh, over there by uh, off of Lake Otis uh, by that car uh, lot, and um, and I go there's a truck pulling out, and I had to miss him, and I went over the embankment and rolled over and landed against and bent up a garage door in a warehouse. All of that was just as perfectly, and I'm arguing with myself. This is a dream, I'm telling my, but I'm worried. Oh my goodness, I just wrecked my mountaineer. Which, as you know, eventually I was able to reason myself. While I'm in this stupor before the phone rang, I have decided that it is a dream. Because I knew that I had gotten rid of that mountaineer. So that's what I was doing this morning. Now that fascinates me when it happens because that's sleep versus a drug-induced reversible uh, coma. So this contrast of natural sleep and the uh, uh, and the drugs that we used in surgery is a fascinating thing, and it's a mystery. Essentially, again, this is the mind-brain problem, uh, which is always a concern to many. By the way. Um, um, needlessly so, I should add. I should add. People ask me all the time what happens in anesthesia, and they use it as proof on the internet, which is another reason why you should not believe anything that you read on the internet. It, just people mindlessly throw things out there, and they do it with so much confidence that you will be convinced that wow, we have a mysterious problem with anesthesia, uh, and it's needlessly a, a, a concern. The mind will function and does function on a reduced level in a reversible coma. Awareness continues. They do a, a brain activity imaging now, right? Electroencephalogram, is that correct? I don't have it written down. Encephal, uh, the graphing of the brain activity. And they call it paradoxical excitation. So in a drug-induced surgical induced um, state, anesthetized state, there's still brain activity. Parts of the brain don't shut down. There's a hierarchy, if you will, to the brain's response uh, to this cocktail of drugs that is, the, that is anesthesia. And, and that hierarchy or that gradation of shutdown is very important. The breathing, the saliva as examples, the tear ducts, the swallowing, they have an order to them. And so uh, understanding that order is is really, really uh, valuable. The, those things that I just named are examples of stuff that has to be supported, has to be monitored if one is placed into this uh, anesthetized state, this irreversible coma caused by this cocktail of drugs. But everyone always asks me, what happens to the mind? And I have gone through surgeries. What, has, what happens to the mind? And that's a mystery. Uh, doctors have shut down the brain's physical processes. By that, the physical communicative connections. The mind can't activate a brain that cannot, that there are the electrical connections. Think of all the switches have been turned off. So the brain does, no longer has any connectable capability. And so the mind cannot activate its brain or receive any discernible, discernible information. So what does the mind do when that happens? And what I'm describing, of course, on a very small level is the relationship between drug-induced reversible comas and Alzheimer's victims. Because the ability to receive information and the ability to export or manifest is interrupted. And what of the energy source? Because the mind needs energy. And as you know, the mind can, if the mind isn't shut off, it'll kill the body. See, rest is critical to us for the body. And the mind, there's countless examples of people that have tried to stay awake for watching soccer games and things like that have killed themselves. So I have to rest the body by making the mind shut off somehow. There's an energy source for the mind. Where does this energy come from? How is it interrupted? What is the impact? How does a non-physical entity or a component, if you will, receive energy from a physical brain or a physical process? And that, as you may recognize, is the great famous question 
raised by Wilder Penfeld. So that's something that I get a lot of questions on. I just covered, I answered a whole bunch of them there, uh, and you didn't even know that those were questions. And how did I answer them? With more questions. Now, I also got a, a long phone call from uh, Angelo from Bermuda. And he was wanting me to explain Isaiah 53. And I received another question on Psalm 137.9. And lastly, Jennifer from Arizona. You remember her. How could we forget her? Uh, hi, Jennifer. She had a Genesis 3, Romans 5, 12 through 14, 1 Timothy 2, 15 question, which fits because we are essentially at Romans 5, 12 through 14. And that you may recognize as the not deceived, um, but nonetheless deliberate act of Adam to heed the two requests of Eve. In other words, 1 Timothy 2, 15, 2, 14, 2, 15 says that uh, Adam was not deceived. And we know that even though he was not deceived, he nonetheless uh, chose to uh, deal with one of the requests of Eve and joined her in death, if you will. Some I also call it the three options of, e, of Adam. Sorry, the three options of Adam, not to be confused with the three options of Samuel, which are <laughs> take some soda. I was sick yesterday. And I was worried about today. I'm going to use my dementia excuse right now. Adam had three options. With When a dying Eve comes to him, he has three options. Remember that. He can join her. He can sacrifice himself for her, or he can let her die alone. If he sacrifices himself for her, then the recidivism issue comes. He's gone. He can't protect her. And she asks him, please save me. He can't save her. doesn't have the capacity. All he can do is temporarily interfere. So he, he makes the decision to join her and not leave her alone. Save me. Do not forsake me. Those are the two questions of Eve. You'll see those, by the way, um, that Christ raises those same, same issues. That's Hebrews 13.5. But don't confuse the three options of David to the three options of Adam. Second Samuel 24 is three options of David. Genesis 3 are three options of Adam. But know that they're a relationship. They connect. So you can figure out what's going on in both places by comparing them. Obviously, all those things I just brought up, all those questions, I can't take all of those on and have any semblance of a lecture on 1 Kings 13 remaining. But Angelo's and Jennifer apply to 1 Kings 13, so that's helpful. Um, and as an aside, uh, Psalm 137.9 is really simple in the sense that you'll find it quoted all the time as an example or proof that God is evil. All the time you see it. shows up. It is where uh, it says, dash your babies against the stones. And they say, see, the Bible says, dash your babies against the stones. And the truth is, it says the opposite of that. It says the pagans are the heathens, the foolish, the ignorant, the evil, dash their babies against the stones. But the people who quoted all the same don't know it is the opposite. They're so hateful and so hate-filled, um, and they're, they're so zealous towards their atheism, they're unaware that it is the opposite of what they think it is. And that, of course, is a blindness uh, from that occurs naturally uh, from their rage. But Jennifer's Adam question is actually or also the key question of the unnamed prophet, which is where we are, and the old prophet, and helps identify the old prophet, sort of. And Angelo's uh, Isaiah 53.10 question lends itself nicely to Psalm 22. And we are, uh, we are moving out of Psalm 22 into 1 Kings in order to solve Psalm 22. Angelo's question, um, is, like I said, is very nice for today because um, Psalm 22.1 is an accusation against the character of God. It is a three-part accusation, as you know if you've been here. It says that God is not good, God forsakes, God doesn't hear, God won't help. That's three parts, it sounds like four, but it's three. In Isaiah 53.10, Angelo says, please explain this. It is in, the, it's in stark contrast to Psalm 22.1. It is a description of Christ. 
And it is in the absolute opposite, again, of Psalm 22.1, which makes it particularly valuable to students of Scripture. Isaiah 53.10 also sheds clarity. Uh, if I add it to Genesis 3.15 and I pull in Romans 16.20, I end up with a really good understanding of things. So, we're going to go to Isaiah 53.10 uh, through 12 right now. And we're going to just run through it really fast. And I hope you see how it is in contrast and therefore solves very important crucifixion questions. 53.10. That's where I'm going to start. You recognize Isaiah 53. It's, it's in lots of songs and it's quoted all the time at, um, at Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, or as what we say in America, Ishtar. Okay, here's 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord. Let me erase some of this so that we can get this all worked out. Am I going to solve who the old prophet is? Yes, I am. And yet it pleased the Lord. Let me write that. Your Bible might have it. It is important to know that the word LORD is in all caps. You're now in a discussion on the names of God. Does your Bible have LORD in all caps? If, if it does not, does it have just the L? Just the L. Well, that's, that is a, a translation or a transcription error, probably translation. What translation is that? It is in all caps? Oh, King James is going to have it in all caps. <laughs> the reason I asked you is I was curious. It has, it has to be, has to be in all caps. And that's very important because that tells you which name it is. Okay? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now you might have crushed. Crushed is the most accurate. But if I, so now what do you do? When you see the word bruised, where, where should you have gone mentally immediately? First place you should go. Yeah, Genesis 3.15, absolutely correct. Bill in the front row. The internet wants to know where everybody sits. I, I'm, I'm not really sure why. I've always wondered if it was some kind of, uh, identification method to track us all down. But you're absolutely right. A bruised will take you to Genesis 3.15. Also takes you into Isaiah uh, uh, 53.5, which takes you to Genesis 3.15. But crushed is correct. And by the way, most of the time you see bruised, it's actually crushed. Yes, it pleased the Lord to uh, bruise him. He has put to grief. Now you might have, he has put him to grief, but him is in italics, which means it is not in the original text. It was added by whoever thought uh, it ought to be there. Should you be suspicious of people that add words? You should. Because uh, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see seed. He shall prolong days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul. Be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Notice the word many. What's not there? What's not there is none, and what's not there is all. What does justify mean? Save. Give eternal life to. And the answer is many. That is what's happening at the cup in Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 36 through 52 is the consequences of many on God as opposed to all. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a great portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. Who poured out his soul? In other words, authority over it. He has control over his death. The lion did it. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. There's that many again. And made intercession for the transgressors. 
First again, notice Lord, all caps. That's the Hebrew tetragrammaton. You know what I mean by that? That's the YH, VH, or WH. You'll see it both ways. That is the unpronounceable name of God. Also the ineffable. It's too great to be described name. Notice I correct my notes. Why do I do that? It's a habit. I think someday somebody will read them to find out who I was. I want the spelling to be right. It's some kind of weird dementia thing. Thank you, Terry. I'm not going to make it. Just so you know. Run it as long as we can. The Hebrew tetragrammaton. The four letters that describe, uh, that are, that are there. If you went to the Hebrew, you would find YHVH. Uh, it is the too great to be described name. It's not pronounceable. It's important to see that because, as I say, and YHVH is related in the Hebrew language to the, uh, verb to be. Which if you recognize to be, you'll notice that the name of God in, in, Exodus 3.14, and I didn't do it right. That's right, as best I can. He's the I Am. Y-H-V-H related to be, to the, to the to be. And the more commonly used to be is I Am. God's name. He says, I am the I am. This is my name forever. So whenever you see YHVH, you think I am. Now, who calls himself I am over and over and over and over and over again? There's one person that does. Who? That's Christ himself. He's saying to you, I am the YHVH. YHWH. That's me. Exodus 3.14. That's me forever. John 8.24, John 8.58, John 6.35, John 8.12, John 10.9, John 10.11, John 11.25, John 14.6, John 15.1, on and on and on and on. He constantly said, I am the I am. This is my name forever. And the Hebrews, the Jews, did not think he stuttered. They got it. We're the ones that make the stupid movies. We're the ones that don't know he's God on the cross. So Isaiah 53 then can be read this way. Yet it pleased the I am to crush the I am. Angelo was concerned over that because he thought it was separating Christ from God. You cannot separate Christ from God as we talked about many, many times. This is not evidence that there is a distinction between Christ and God. This is evidence of the opposite of that, as is always the case. And obviously this is a triunity verse. Triunity being defined as this. God being composed of three united persons without separate existence. So completely united as to form one God. The I Am. And they always have... They have to. They always have agreement. They must agree. Have no position where Christ is reneging or complaining or he's confused or he's incoherent or he's despairing because all of that is not agreement. That's why he cannot be saying the three complaints of Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, of Psalm 22-1. Because he's God. He's in agreement. This is a triunity verse. 22.1 of Psalms is not a triunity verse. To avoid doctrinal error, it is critical that we identify the triunity verses in Scripture. The crucifixion of the I Am has triunity verses in it. One of them is, Father, forgive them. That's a triunity verse. He could have said, I Am, forgive them. Y-H-V-H, forgive them. He is the I Am. He's talking to the I Am. He's speaking aloud. He doesn't need to speak aloud. To himself, if you will. Not really. Because there are composed of three united persons. And he also says, into your hands I commit 
my spirit. Into the I am's hands I commit the I am. Those are not saying that Christ is distinct, separated. It's the opposite. Psalm 22.1 has has no triunity in it at all. It, it has no sameness. Isaiah 53.10 says definitively that the triune Godhead is pleased that the I am is crushed. And that makes perfect sense. Now, we're taught to do things and we're intuitive and I'm trying to break that habit. Really quickly, there's something going around the internet that's really good. It says, I have a bat and I have a ball. This is the kind of thinking the church is doing to you today. Not just the church, it's the schools, it's everybody. They gave this question, uh, you may have seen it, it's really very well done. It's A man has recognized how badly we think nowadays. We're not being taught how to think. We're being told what to think. Horrible. It's happening in the churches all the time. It's easy to control people if you can control what they think. If you teach them how to think, you can't control anybody. I don't want to control anybody, ever. Again, dementia excuse. I'm having trouble controlling myself. Especially at night. Anybody over 55 will know what I'm talking about. Anyway, bat and ball. The bat and the ball... When you add the cost of them together, there's a dollar ten cents. Okay? The, the bat is a dollar greater than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now they go to Harvard. They go to MIT. And the graduates, the seniors, cannot figure that out. They get it wrong. 80% of university students in this country cannot get that right. Now, that's really a shame. Do you know what they answer all the time? Ten cents. That's wrong. We do the same thing, by the way, reading the crucifixion story in the Bible. We answer wrong almost every single time. We get everything we look because we look at it intuitively. I can do it for you really quick, right? Okay, x plus x plus 1 equals 110. You with me? The bat is x plus 1. I'm sorry. The bat is, yeah, the bat is x plus 1. So the ball, this is the ball. The ball plus a dollar equals a dollar 10. With me so far? So I have 2x plus 1 equals a dollar 10. Like that, 2x equals a dollar. Because I have to subtract one from both sides of the equation. I'm sorry, equals 10 cents. 2x equals 10 cents. x equals 5 cents. 10 divided by 2. I skipped some steps in there. Hopefully that makes sense to you. The answer is 5 cents. But you are preconditioned. I won't ask you to raise your hands. But if I did, 80% of you would go, I answer 10 cents. Unless you'd seen it before. But we are preconditioned to think backwards. And that's what's happening in the church. That is why the church is getting destroyed on the triune scriptures. Okay? I've decided to add in Isaiah 53 in the coming weeks because of all of this, and I'll keep doing it. And also because of the meal offering where the crushing or the bruising happens to the wheat. The wheat had to be crushed and sifted because it's a purification test. Just like uh, Matthew 4, Hebrews 5, 9. The inspection and the testing in Matthew 4 and Hebrews 5, 9 is proving that Christ is perfect. It's not proving that he has the potential to fail. He has no potential to fail. The process is proving he's perfect. Anyway, the fivefold offerings are of particular importance to uh, Psalm 22.1. Okay. They make it obvious, by the way, that the hind of the morning, Psalm 22.1, whoever says it does not pass inspection. The, pure, their pure, the hind of the morning purity test is filled with contamination. Next, Jennifer from Arizona asked the key question of 1 Kings 13. She wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially this is her question. Why didn't God forewarn Adam about the deceiving nature of Satan? 
Why didn't he warn Adam about that? Which uh, then one could expand to include Eve. Why didn't God forewarn Adam that Satan would successfully deceive Eve? And then Eve would then come to Adam in a state of death and dying. Uh, Why didn't Satan warn, I'm sorry, why didn't God warn Adam that Satan would would deceive Eve and that Eve would be coming to him dying? In other words, give him an advanced uh, uh, heads up here. And Jennifer is fundamentally asking why God only warned Adam of the consequences of taking and eating from the tree of the surely die. You know, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Genesis 2.17, right? And he did not provide more specific information with respect to Satan's method of attack. Why, Jennifer wants to know. And it's fortuitous that Jennifer had asked this question the very time we're trying to finish 1 Kings 13. What's the totality of meaning of the unnamed man of God and the lying old prophet who resides in the pagan filth of the city of Bethel? See, it's the same question in both passages. The question that Jennifer asks about Adam is exactly the same question in 1 Kings 13. Why didn't God warn the unnamed man of God about the lying old prophet? Because the lying old prophet seems to fool him, right? Why didn't God warn Adam about Satan? Did Satan fool Adam? No. First Timothy 2.15, 14. God gives a commandment to his unnamed prophet. For it was commanded me by the word of God, 1 Kings 13, 9. You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. Compare that to Genesis 2, 16, 17. The Lord, YHVH, by the way, commanded the man, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. You see that they are essentially the same. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and in 1 Kings 13, 9, a commandment to the man of God is, is given, and it's a shall not eat commandment. Both places. In both cases, the penalty is what? Death. In both cases, a liar is involved. In both cases, the man of God chooses to violate the commandment. In both cases, the man of God is a type of Jesus Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. Romans 5, the, man, the unnamed prophet, the man of God, is a type of Christ. The question, the, the mystery, the, the enigma, is the old prophet. His identity is shrouded and uh, typologically, and more so is his motive. Okay, keeping in mind, That the unnamed man of God, what does he do? He comes in, cleanses the pagan ceremony of Jeroboam. He blows apart the golden calf altar. He tells of the coming king. He names the coming king's name. And identifies the portrait of of Zechariah 11.17, Jeroboam, as a type of the worthless shepherd by withering the hand of Jeroboam. So now I know Jeroboam is an antichrist type because of Zechariah 11.17. Jeroboam is described as the worthless shepherd that is killing the people of Israel. And then the unnamed prophet leaves, declaring that this, this is a place that God has totally rejected. I won't eat here, I won't drink here, and I'll get out of here by a different path. God has totally rejected it, this place. But, as you know, because you've been here and you read the story, a lying old prophet whose descendants are what? His sons. What are they? They're at the pagan festival. So what are they? They're pagans. The old prophet's not there, but his sons are pagans. And they're calf kissers, if you will. Hosea 13.2. They're worshiping the golden calves. Hosea calls that kissing the calves. There you go back to Judas in Gethsemane. His sons, the old prophet's sons, The lying prophet, they're the ones that tell the lying prophet about the man of God. And the liar does what liars do. He chases after him, and what does he do to him? He lies to him. Notice that the the unnamed prophet comes, and the unnamed prophet leaves. I have an arrival and a departure, or if you will, a returning and a departure. More on that later. Remember, all of the Old Testament testifies and speaks of Jesus Christ, John 5.39. Find Christ. If you don't do it, you're never going to get the treasures. Now, 
So I'm going to really go fast now. So you notice I sped up. The old prophet's sons were pagans. The old prophet caused the death of the man of God, if you will, caused by lying to him. And that isn't true, by the way. He didn't cause the death of the man of God. What caused the death of the man of God? Think that through. But the old prophet also prophesizes of the death of the man of God. So he lies to him, but then he prophesizes that the, the man of God will die. If I said to you, the man of God will die, who am I talking about? The God-man will die. Yeah, obviously it's a picture of Christ. The odd man will be buried. The old prophet is buried with the man of God. His bones were not burned. By the way, this is the cremation issue. As you're aware, the Jews refused to be cremated. May not be. They resist it. So again, who is the old prophet portraying? His sons are pagans. His descendants are pagans. He causes the death, if you will, or he contributes to it, or he's involved in the death of the man of God. He's a liar, but at the same time, he, he prophesizes. He is able to prophesy his great prophecy that there will be a death of the man of God. And his bones are protected. They are buried with the man of God and they are not burned when Josiah eventually comes. So who is he portraying? Certainly he's not portraying, the old prophet is not portraying Jesus Christ. And notice that unlike the hind of the morning in Psalm 22.1, the opposite, in fact, of the hind of the morning, the body of the man of God is not torn to pieces. Psalm 22.1, the hind of the morning is torn to pieces. The man of the God, of God, who's portraying Christ, is not torn to pieces. That, by the way, should solve Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You should never, ever again think, just with that one piece, that that's Christ saying that about himself. But the critical question is, is Jennifer's. Did the man of God believe the old prophet? Did the old prophet deceive the unnamed old, or man of God? What's the evidence? Yes or no? You can wager. Was the man of God deceived by the lie of the old prophet, or did he know immediately it was a lie? Was Adam deceived by Satan? No. Was Adam deceived by Eve? No. Better question. Did Eve ever attempt to deceive Adam? Did Eve ever lie? Obviously, it is obvious. That's a joke. Somebody on the internet will get it and laugh. Obviously, it is obvious that 1 Kings 13 and Genesis 3 have a relationship. And by that relationship, I submit it is correct to conclude that the unnamed man of God was not ever deceived by the lying old prophet. Who's going to fall for an angel told me? Uh, certainly not me. I hope certainly none of you ever. So the key question then becomes, why did the man of God return and eat with and stay with the old prophet, fully knowing with the full knowledge that it would result in his death? What did the man of God talk about to the old prophet? Why did he go back with him? The old prophet comes after him. Lies to him. Says, come back with me. He goes, knowing it's a lie, knowing it's going to cause, it's going to result in his death. He's willing to do it. Why? Because salvation is involved. What would make the man of God do this? Only salvation. A man of God sent by God comes to, to a pagan Israel knowing the commandment that he's given. The plan, but he stays and he dies. And by doing so, the lying old prophet is buried with him. Which means what? The lying old prophet is saved. Is it good to be a lying old prophet? It is in Genesis, or in 1 Kings 13. Will Israel be restored? Yes, they will. See, by the way, there's salvation for liars. Isn't that good news? 
there is the crucifixion motive. There is no abandonment at the crucifixion of Christ. There's no despair. There's no confusion. There's no disorientation. That is all bah. It's all crud. I have better, stronger words that I can't put on the internet. This is what the I am does. He goes and he saves people every single time. And he takes off his disguise. And we're so stupid, we can't even figure out who he is. Instead of calling him God, we think he's some incoherent, crying baby. He's the opposite of that. It isn't ten cents, it's five cents. That makes sense to you. Let's rise and be dismissed.